You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at InforumSF.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at InforumSF. I am Angela Duckworth, and I am not the star of this show. Ellen Bennett is the Ellen has written a book that I absolutely love, and we are in conversation. I need to begin with your name, though, Ellen, because I've been calling you Ellen, but it says here, Ellen Marie Bennett. Can you clear that up? And then we will get started in conversation, and it is a great thing just to even see you tonight. I know. I'm so happy to see your your face, even if it's on a screen. That's that's fantastic. I, I miss you so much. Um, uh, Ellen Marie Bennett is my full name. And when I was younger, my parents just called me Ellen Bennett. But Marie comes from all of my tias, my Mexican aunts, and they all are named Delta Maria, Angela Maria. Everyone is a Marie. And so I really wanted to embrace that. And I said, no, nope, my name is actually Ellen Marie Bennett. So when they said, what, are your, what does your name want to be on the book? I said, Ellen Marie Bennett. That's the full culture is right there. And so that's why it's now three, three words. Excellent. Okay, now that I know what your name is, Ellen Marie Bennett, <laughs> I am going to actually do your official introduction and introduce myself to everyone. Um, Ellen Marie and I go back a little bit, but um, I'll just say for myself, I am Angela Duckworth. I'm a psychologist. I'm a professor. And um, the most important thing to know about me is that I got to meet Ellen Marie Bennett, uh, through a chef, uh, who I just texted by the way. And Mark Betry says, hello. And he says, your book is amazing, which is true. Um, I'm delighted to be in conversation with you. I'll read a few facts about you before um, we get started. You are the founder and CEO of the culinary apparel company, Headley and Bennett. And we match. So there we we go. Um, I'm wearing your uh, apron uh, proudly. Uh, Ellen, you started this company while you were working as a line cook, which I think is in chapter one in LA, uh, and you sought to manufacture higher quality aprons that were more comfortable to wear uh, than anything that was available at the time. Now, fast forward, Headley and Bennett is a multi-million dollar lifestyle brand. Um, And we're in conversation today to discuss this, uh, which as you know, I just love. I got to read it before, but when I saw it in, um, sorry, I've got the cover facing me, in full Technicolor, I love it even more, which I didn't think was possible. Um, So I want to remind our audience uh, tonight that you can ask questions anytime in the chat. I get to start off with some questions uh, that I've prepared, uh, but we will get to your questions and um, answer as many as possible. So uh, to begin, um, Ellen, can you walk us through the now, of course, famous inception of Henley Bennett? Tell us a story of how you went from cook to CEO of a multi-million dollar business. It was a very humble beginning. And I had been, I was raised by a Mexican mama that I love very dearly and feel like I owe so much of my grittiness to because she just always made something out of nothing constantly and was so resourceful and creative, even though we didn't have a ton of resources. So I had sort of grown up with that feeling of just like figure it out, make it happen. 
And I had had enough situations in my life where I had made big leaps and landed, even though I didn't exactly know where I was going to land. So when this moment came along that I'm about to explain to you, it was like the skies opened up and it shined on me. But I maybe if I hadn't had those challenging circumstances, I don't know if I would have made the leap. So I was standing in my chef's kitchen as a line cook. I was 24 years old. I was working three jobs, making $10 an hour, climbing the ranks of the culinary world, really trying to become a chef. That was my goal. And the chef came up to me and he said, hey, Ellen, there's a girl. She's going to make us aprons for the restaurant. Do you want to buy one? That was a simple side comment. And it's like everything around me came to a screeching halt because I had had this glimmer of an idea that our uniforms were horrible, that they didn't fit well, that they didn't look right. They were paper thin. They were a commodity that nobody thought about. Yet we were like warriors going into a kitchen every night, showing up for battle, working 12-hour shifts, standing on our feet, and yet we looked and felt terrible. And I thought, man, if we could have a uniform that actually made us look and feel awesome, how cool would that be? We would lift our heads up a little bit higher. Didn't matter if you were going to be a line cook or an executive chef in the kitchen, like you mattered. So he said that to me and I was like, oh my God, is this, is this it? Is this that moment? And, and I just kind of, without thinking it, about it too much, I blurted out, chef, I have an apron company. I'll make you those aprons. And he was like, what are you talking about? You're a cook in my kitchen. And I said, chef, no, I've been thinking about this and I have a doing business as license, which was honestly all I had. I had no sewers, no plan, no patterns, nothing. And, but I had this idea and this thing that I wanted to make happen. And he looked at me and he just, I think just saw a lot of conviction and I convinced him to give me the order. So out of the blue, as I was standing there, he's like, okay, fine. 40 aprons. I need them in a month. Go make it happen. And I was like, oh my God, I have to do this now. So that was literally the inception of Headley and Bennett. And I'm so grateful for that moment because if I hadn't taken that leap, I don't know that I would have failed, learned, gotten up and kept on climbing through all the things we'll talk through tonight. But that, that was the beginning of the journey was that leap of faith, dreaming first, details later. And have you ever uh, gone back and had like a debrief with this chef who gave you your, like, did, did, did they know that you really didn't have a company, but you had a dream or, and they thought like, maybe I'll give them a shot. Or did they think, oh, great. I'll get my 40 aprons a little, you know, like I won't have to pay shipping and handling. Like what was the real uh, truth behind this like bet that somebody took on you? <laughs> yeah. Such a good question. Chef was extremely, his name's Joseph Centeno. He was extremely entrepreneurial too. And I remember he'd always have paint splatters all over his shoes because he'd be painting the restaurant before we'd go into service. And then he'd roll in to cook with us. And I think he just appreciated somebody else willing to take that leap and do it themselves because he did everything himself. And he thought, all right, well, she works for me. So I know where to find her. And she also is pretty convincing. And on top of that, well, she's going to do it a week faster than the other gal. So I'm sold. And I kind of was like, all right, great. I'm taking it and I'm going to figure it out. And I could tell he was annoyed at how long the other person was going to take. So I really leaned into the timeline and I said, well, I will do it faster. I'll do it in a month. We'll make it happen. Let's go. 
Okay, and- so now tell us what happened, right? So uh, tell us about the first, I don't know what you want to call it, like the first First trip, few the first- couple of weeks, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was really magical and fun. And I was like, oh my gosh, we're so cool. I have an apron company now. I had no supplies of any kind. I had no sewers. I literally was starting from zero. Had, you ever, had, had you ever made an apron, like even no. one in your life? Okay. Never. Yeah. And so what I did was something that I talk about in the book, which is back to my mom, being very resourceful. I thought about what do I have versus what do I not have? And I was like, okay, well, I've got myself. I know how to cook. I work at one of the best restaurants in LA. What if I barter with Look, people? I think I posted noted this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. This was one of my favorites. Yeah. yeah I had. I, had, and I, I didn't have. <laughs> it's quite a long list on the I didn't have. Uh, but but it's even longer on the I did have because it was all in my head. I was like, okay, well, I've had a challenging childhood of having grown up with a single Mexican mama by myself. I have the ability to look errors in the eye. I have chutzpah and grit and I've got $300 in my bank account and (laughs) I have the ability to cook. Let's do this. And so I called a friend and I said, Hey, can you make me a pattern and I'll come over and I'll cook you dinner? You know, I work at Providence. That's a really good restaurant. And he was like, good deal. Fair enough. Deal. So he made me the pattern. Then I got my pattern and I called another friend and I said, who do you know that knows how to sew? Who's out there? And he's like, oh, I know a guy that knows another guy. And four or five phone calls later, I'd found a a guy who his sewing facility was really in his living room. So I roll over to Mr. Jose and I give him the sort of layout of what I want to make. And between just sheer conviction that we were going to do this, We somehow hacked these first aprons together and I delivered them on time, which was miraculous because I literally didn't even have straps when I started. And it all happened because I would sit with the chef and I'd say, what do you love? What do you hate? What do you need? How can I make this the best thing that I can be? And based on that, I went and found fabric and did the whole All in those few weeks, right? All Not prior those, to no. you suddenly having this opportunity land, right? Okay. But it was a gift because he was explaining. He was like a living focus group right in front of me mm-hmm. telling me, I need this. I don't like this. I want pockets that are reinforced. I hate that the neck strap pulls on my neck. This doesn't fit well. And for everyone out there not uh, like listening, if you're in a professional restaurant, a knife, a cutting board, and an apron are kind of like your core tenets of cooking. That's what you need. It is not optional. It is mandatory. So he really knew what he didn't like. And if he said, oh, the pockets need to be in reinforced, I'd be like, oh my God, yes, because mine all rip off because I, you know, I had my own experiences with it. So we developed them and then I turned them in and Angela, guess what happened? (laughs) This is the part of the story that I want to hear. I read the book, but I want you to tell us what happened, Nellen. So 24 hours after I gave him the aprons, it looked all crisp, like a little stack of double mint gum. Beautiful, right? Like gorgeous, just spectacular. Instagrammable. Yeah, I made it. Here I am, naive Bennett. He calls me into his office and he's like, Bennett, these aprons suck. What happened? The straps aren't working. And I was like, no. (laughs) My one and only chef, I am. Now my job is on the line. He's my one and only customer. What am I going to do? I just said to him, chef, you're absolutely right. I will make these right. Give me half the stack and I'll let the kitchen wear the other half while I fix these and we'll figure something out with the straps. And I had with now essentially a sort of quasi gun to the head, I had a timeline 
and I needed to make this right. And it was under that pressure that I really figured out what was needed. And this may sound so simple, but it was the fact that the apron strap just kept falling down because it was like with a little D ring, which is something that you just pull up and it lets go and you have to adjust it all the time. So we developed these brass hardware um, adjustable straps. I know it doesn't American, ever fall down, right? It doesn't budge. Once yeah. it's on, it's on. And when you're in a kitchen for 12 hours, that is a big deal. It's also made with beautiful American cotton webbing. So I tracked down the webbing. We figured out a system. So there was a little X box. So it stayed in place, came back. And I was like, chef, I think I've got the solution. How does this look? And he said, these work great. Take the other half. Okay. On to the next thing. Like he was just rolling through <laughs> his day. He's like, check mark, check mark. You really check are soulmates. You're like, okay, got it. <laughs> and it was awesome because he was willing to give me honest, raw feedback and I was willing to take it. And so we made, I want to ask team. you, like, I know that the, uh, triumph over the first challenge and also you write, I uh, so insightfully about the psychology of taking feedback, which I have to say, um, I, I agree with you as a psychologist, like it is the only thing and the necessary thing for learning. But I want to ask you, when you first discovered that your batch of aprons, uh, where I assume you even spent all the profits, right? Like you, you had like probably taken, oh, it, yeah. I assume like this, like maybe less, maybe yeah. you didn't have, maybe you were like in the red already. Did you cry? Like, did you cry? I mean, like, was there a period of, you know, oh my God, I can't do it. And then a period of like, no, I can do it. Or did you just go right to like, got it, chef, like, we're going to fix this, etc. I had no time to wallow in my sorrows because I was working two different jobs and doing this. And the lack of time actually helped me just be that much more resourceful because I didn't have the gift of going home to sit and analyze and feel bad about myself. I was just like, he's standing right in front of me, yelling at me at how this is wrong. What are you going to do about it at that time? Are you going to run away? No, you work for the guy. Fix it is what you need to do. So it was just this automatic assumption that clicked in my head. I had committed to something and I hadn't fully delivered. So I better fix it full stop. And just knowing that and having that just in, insight inside of me made me figure it out. And I was like, I will, I will come back and we will get this right. And I also, when he gave me that first order was so thrilled. This, there was this deep passion inside of me that I had never really felt. And it was enthusiasm and an excitement. And it was like, I had hit on a mental landmine of enthusiasm and adrenaline. And I wanted that feeling again and again. And that was the creation of something out of nothing. And I was hooked. So I thought, man, well, if I get through this and I get to do this one more time, then it's worth it. So what happened to the dream of being a chef, right? So, so you had done this like whole trajectory and you yeah. thought you were going to basically go a different So tell me like, like, like what went through your head? Were you like, and why didn't you feel that high from like being on the journey of being a chef? Like what, what is it about yeah. this more entrepreneurial, I think more entrepreneurial venture that really kicked in for you? Yeah, I, I definitely thought I was going to be a chef and I was determined to stick to that path. And I, 
you know, I moved to Mexico City when I was 18 and I lived there for four years on my own and I had a million jobs to pay my way through culinary school and study restaurant management and all of this stuff. And and then I left it all because I was like, I got to go back to the United States and start my culinary career, which is why I got a job at Providence, which is what led me which to is start still Headley while you are in I'm going to be a chef mode, right? Exactly. And, and I think that a lot of us, a lot of the times you see these paths and they're very straight, it's like straight path. And you think I need to do this to go to the university and then I'm going to get married and I'm going to go white picket fence and then I'm going to have babies and then I'm going to get a raise and then and like that is success and it's a very like linear path and yet here I was living in Mexico City working a million jobs announcing the lottery on television that was one of my jobs <laughs> that was in one Mexico. of your jobs like it's a there's like good an one. entire uh, infographic <laughs> in the book about all the wild jobs I had but I say That's that right. you have the timeline. <laughs> the timeline. I say that because it was windy. And so here I was still convincing myself. It was, I was every day I was convincing myself a little bit. I was like, I love cooking. This is great, right? I'm on the journey. This is the right thing. I love this so much. Look at how much fun I'm having. It's fantastic. <laughs> but there was something in the back of my mind saying, I don't actually know that restaurants and owning one is what you want to do forever. And so when this moment came along, I was willing to let go of this other idea to just try this other thing. And it turns out it was the best thing I could have ever done because I followed my gut and I listened to this inner voice being like, yo, wake up, look at what just happened. Look at how you feel about it. And I went after it like a bat out of hell. Um, you know, actually, because Mark Vetri introduced us, I have to say that he texted me this graphic. You know that graphic that's like on, I don't know, Google Images where like one is like success and it's a straight line. And then it yeah. says, you know, like it's uh, it's it's literally uh, I'll send I'll just, you know, like that's kind of it. what you oh, just yeah. described. Right. Literally, that's what he just <laughs> said. So, um, OK, so so you've written this book to help other people achieve um, their dreams. So I'm taking it that one of the lessons is that it's not a straight line. And it sounds like you were, you know, not entirely wrong about food and the hospitality, but it wasn't exactly right. So there was this like calibration. Is that, you know, like entrepreneurs are listening um, and they're buying your book, by the way, by the score. Um, like what, 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 what would you say, like the distillation of this pivot? Like what's the moral of that part of the story? Yeah, the moral is definitely be willing to, to adapt and to shift and to kind of take a left and take a right when what you are doing right in front of you doesn't feel correct or doesn't feel full full to you. It doesn't complete you. And I was finding my way. I think if I look back to all those crazy jobs I had in Mexico and flying to Mexico, I was on a hunt for my thing. I was looking in the world for this thing that would fulfill me. And I knew it had, as you said, to do with food, but I hadn't quite hit the like, bing, that's the one, that's the one, that's the one. So I just kept trying more and more things. And I believe that when you put yourself in interesting circumstances where you are doing something out of your comfort zone or you are showing up in a way that you've never shown up before, like that is where you learn and that's where you grow really, truly. You're out of your zone. You're out of your home. You're out of your your safety net. And every time I was out of my safety net, I was learning something new and also learning what I didn't want. 
And so if I hadn't gotten that job at Providence and had leaped into having my own restaurant, I would probably be in debt. I would be miserable. And I would have gone down a path that was way too straight and without the experiences that I needed to have first. So don't be afraid to take a weird path to get to where you need to get to and stop comparing yourself to other people. You can only imagine when I moved to eight, to Mexico at 18, my friends were going off to great schools. They were getting married. So you went Everything. to Mexico to go to culinary school and it is in the book and there is a yeah. timeline, but do you want to just double click on that? Like what, why didn't you go to, I don't know, CIA in upstate yeah. New York? I couldn't afford CIA. My mother literally was like, I can't <laughs> afford okay. that school. It's a uh, $70,000. What? Yeah. I didn't know that. It, it's, like per year? Um, or is it only think, one year? No, Maybe it's, it's, only one it's year? a two year program. I believe it's like 40 something thousand a year. It's very expensive. It's a lot of money. Okay. And my, my mom was like, I, I can't do that. I'm so sorry. I love you, but that is one thing I can't give you. And so I was a little bit, and we couldn't even afford Le Cordon Bleu in LA. So I thought, all right, well, fine. Let me see about Mexico. I'll go to Mexico and figure out what that looks like. But I planned to go for two months and then I stayed for four years. So there were all of these little catalysts that were leading me deeper down this path in this journey of finding my way in the world. And none of it was comfortable. It wasn't comfortable moving to Mexico when I was 18 by myself. It wasn't comfortable having to get a million jobs to pay my way through the culinary school I was finally able to afford. These were challenging moments that really helped me get notches on my confidence belt, as I like to call it in the book. I just learned how to show up and how to not fail so that when chef said, hey, do you, you know, do you want to buy an apron? I was able to say, yes, I can do this for you. And even more remarkable when it didn't actually work out. Like that to me is the most impressive thing of that part of the story that you said, okay, give me half the aprons, I'll fix it. And you didn't, you know, you didn't implode, like you didn't yeah. uh, give up then. Um, can you speculate about your childhood influences if you think this is the case that that gave you the notches on the confidence belt to even get you to the 18-year-old self that was able to move to Mexico with nothing and figure out what culinary school even meant there? Yeah. Like what, what, what was it? Was it your mom? Was it like, you know, where does that come? Because I have hung out with you enough to just be like awestruck in how confident you really are. I remember once we were at a fundraiser and you said like, oh, come and meet all these famous chefs. And I was like, I feel like I am on the set of Food Network, but everybody's here and they're all, it's like, but they're all friends with you. And you introduced me to everyone and you know, you're like, sort of like climbing over people's boxes and, you know, shoving food in my mouth. And I was like, I thought I was pretty confident. I also thought I was pretty extroverted, but nothing compared to you. So where, where does this fire come from? One, I totally blame in the best of ways, my Mexican culture. I was raised by a Mexican mom, and I also had an English father. So that was quite a cultural difference. And on one end, I was running around the streets of Mexico, playing soccer barefoot, eating tortillas and beans and doing all this fun stuff that I loved. And on the flip side, I was eating Walker's cookies, drinking tea with my grandfather, Headley, at 4 p.m. when I would see him. So I had contrasting views in the world. 
And I really was drawn towards the energy of Mexico and how no matter how little resources you had, you made things work. And I had friends that didn't have floors in their homes, and yet they would invite me over for beans and rice and cheese. And it was delicious and wonderful. And they were so happy. And it kind of made me see as a little kid that that was actually what mattered was how you interacted with others, how you made them feel, how you could share this meal with someone, even if you didn't have a lot, you were giving to others. And that was a beautiful thing. So I was raised with that. And then when my parents got divorced at about nine, it's like the whole world kind of exploded around me. And it felt like the equivalent of having been in a car crash. And it's like I climbed out of the car and I'm standing on this highway while my parents are figuring out what the hell they're going to do. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, this is wild. Like all of a sudden, they have to go their separate ways because of whatever is happening. And I just made this decision. I vividly remember this as a little kid saying, I am never going to rely on anyone for anything. I'm going to find somebody that I love and I'm going to marry them because I love them, not because I need them. And I am going to make something out of myself. And here we go. And it was like I decided in that moment to start walking down the highway instead of waiting for that car to repatch itself up and like get me in the car and start driving. And that's propelled me ever since to just keep going. So I took this really terrible catastrophic situation in my life and I made it my biggest ammo. And I just never stopped thinking that like it is up to me every day that I get up, it is in me to make the things happen. And I just don't forget that. My uh, guess is that you put yourself on a virtuous cycle of like, you know, I think I can do this. And then you try it. And whether you are immediately successful or not, you ultimately learn a ton. Et and so it's been, and I, I think the lessons that you've distilled for aspiring entrepreneurs who want to follow in your footsteps, um, uh, like I said, are, 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 are fantastic. Um, uh, what about women in particular? I know that um, in the uh, book you say, look, um, uh, or actually it may have been the letter that you sent with the book. But anyway, I know that you were like, there are lots of books written. Sorry, no no offense, but by bros, right? By men. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, just tell me more about like being a woman in food, um, yeah. the voice that you have in this book, you know, uh, say more about that. It's a timely yeah, topic. Totally. Uh, well, First off, the book is extremely colorful, which is very unusual for a business book. And when I pitched the idea to Penguin Random House, they're like, we've never done a colorful business book. What does that even mean? And I was <laughs> like, this is what it's going to look like. It's going to be incredible. There's going to be color and stripes. And just even the idea of not having a cover on the outside of the book and just printing directly on it like a cookbook was oh my mind gosh. blowing to them what i just yeah. realized that you're right yeah. is this what oh, because cookbooks are like this because that's who right. wants a cover on your cookbook <gasps> nobody yep. did not appreciate that until this very moment <laughs> so i was like i want it to be colorful and inviting and make people feel the layers that it takes to build something out of nothing why should business books be black and white if business is not black and white? And mm. that was the whole idea behind that. And when I went to the business book section, the reason I say the comment about men, and, and I have had a lot of really amazing men help me in, in the journey, but most of the books were written by men. 
And most of the books were about things like, well, should Wells Fargo go international or not? And it doesn't make sense based on the economic state status of Europe. And you're like, what? I'm just trying to hire somebody. How do I get somebody to work with me? <laughs> right? Basics, zero to one, one to 20. Like I was trying to do the beginning steps and everything was on, you know, PhD level. And I thought there is no book out there that's going to give you the basics and make you feel okay for all the failure that is about to come and to normalize it and make you feel like I can do this even if I'm waking up every day and failing every day. And eventually you are going to get to a place where you succeed and that feeling is unbelievable. So you just have to keep trying. And that's what I wanted to do. I was like, I'm going to bottle myself up in a book and basically pep talk somebody right off the ledge so that they can start trying things too. So when you say dream first, details later, how clear is the vision in your head? For example, let's take this book, right? Yeah. Could you, could you see the spine? Did you know what it was going to look like? Did you know how long it would be? Did you, or does dream first mean... I don't even know what it's going to look like, but let's go and we'll figure it out on the way. What is, what is dream first details later really mean? It's the latter for sure. I had no idea what it was going to look like. I knew it would have color. So I have these like broad imagination moments that are the, the sort of pillars of, of the dream. And it's using that imagination and sort of tapping your inner little kid that doesn't have the restrictions of the normal day-to-day -day life telling you, you can't do this. You're not allowed to do that. Penguin Random House doesn't do color. I was just like, no, we're going to make <laughs> it look like this and it's going to be awesome. And we're going to figure it out. And when you show up in the world in a way that is unique and special to you, like that is actually how you succeed. If you try to be like everyone else, well, that's kind of boring. That already exists. So I just thought I'm going to show up in a way that's me and I don't have all the answers, but I'm going to find good people that are going to help me get there. And that has been my motto from day one, having enough humility to ask for help and to figure it out by learning and listening. And, and there's a section in the book that I really love that I call humble enthusiasm. And it's being willing to learn and willing to listen, right? And so you're like excited about what you're doing, but you're also excited to learn from the person in front of you. And when you combine those two together, it's extremely powerful because that person is now into what you're doing. They're willing to collaborate with you. And you're also not being obnoxious and annoying about being like, oh, I know it all. Nobody wants to talk to people that know it all. How much of creativity is empathy? And if you had uh, somebody whom you hired, who you only realized after you hired them, uh, was not acting especially creatively, um, yeah. like, you know, would, would you start with empathy exercise? So I, I, I love that the book is not only a memoir, but it really is really practical. And there's like checklists and, you know, like what, yeah. what, what's your practical advice about bringing out creativity in other people? Um, uh, and, and I assume that it has something to do with empathy, but I don't know how you would yeah. make somebody else as empathic and therefore as creative as you are. Yeah. I definitely have, it's funny because now I have a team where a lot of them, their other jobs pre-Headley and Bennett are places like 
Deutsche Bank and Bain and McKinsey. And then you've got like maniacal Ellen in the room that's like, let's go. <laughs> and it's really, it's a sight to see. Yin and yang. A hundred percent. And I need them just as much as they need me. I mean, it's a really fun dynamic. But first of all, I don't hire people that have an ego because when you have an ego, you're not willing to learn. And if you're not willing to learn, you can't evolve and you can't shake fixed ideas out of your head. So I have team members that are just willing to have these conversations. And I will find myself in meetings where they're getting real crazy about a deck and trying to build everything before they just take the first leap. And so I use a lot of analogies. I go hard on the analogies. I'm like, give me one. I love analogies. (laughs) Okay. So I, uh, I have, okay, I'm going to share something with you that I, I'm not exactly sharing with the world yet, but I can't think of another analogy. So I'm going to do it. Now you are. uh, (laughs) Here I am sharing this, uh, out with the world. So I am pregnant right now. Whoa. Um, yeah, I what? know. I know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, oh my just God, casual. I'm so excited. I yeah. know. It's <laughs> that. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's <laughs> like, and now I'm we're like, all I'm in like, the I can't know. think of another analogy other than this. How am I going to get out of this one? <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to dream for details Ellen. later. Oh my God. I really I'm so do. Excited. Yes. So pretty early on still, but. So I was talking to my team member the other day about embroidery machines. And he's like, okay, we are going to need to get this six-figure setup in our 3PL to start this process. And I'm going to need this machine. It's going to take us a few months to investigate. And I'm like, whoa, 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 McKinsey. Like, hold on (laughs) a second. And I said to him, I had a conversation the other day with a friend of ours who's a really great friend, but she also happens to be a real estate agent. Also, my analogies are long-winded, so bear with me. You, it's okay. They're track. like stories and There's analogies. stories and analogies. They're fables. There's a moral. So I'm like, I called her the other day to say, hey, our house is little in LA. You know, we're thinking about, should we get a bigger house? What should we do? And she's like, Ellen, what you need to do is hang tight. Be in that house. Feel it. Have the baby. Live in it. And see what you need. See what's missing. And then start to like tinker with all the things you want and then Mm. you get to go build it and I was like that's actually a really good point versus leaping into the unknown trying to find a house we trying to figure it all out theoretically right without actually having any experience and data she's like live it with a baby and see what's missing you have you live on a hill you're gonna see the stroller's gonna be a pain the backyard is terraced it's gonna be challenging but no one can see that except for you so just hang tight and do baby steps on it. And I was like, that's really good advice. So then I turned to Steven. With the embroidery, the, the, uh, with whatever the embroidery 3PL machine. is. I'm not yeah. an entrepreneur. I have no idea what that is. Yeah. And I said to him, Steven, what if you take, what if you just do a little bit of like adjust and pivot and try and using the existing resources we have and the embroiderer we have down the street, instead of insourcing it all, do a hybrid model, work with the outsourced embroiderer and see how it works. See if people like what we're setting up and start trying it and testing it. So on the front end, it's going to look like we just expanded all of our embroidery options. But on the back end, you're really just using an outsourced guy down the street. And once you do that, you're really going to get to lean in and know exactly what you want. And then we can go buy whatever machines we want instead of you spending six months building this out a hundred thousand dollars on the machine to then realize that that machine is overkill and you really just needed two software upgrades. And he was like, 
that's a fair point. All right, fine. <laughs> he's I like, will. I guess I'm going to go do that. Yeah, he's like, all right, that's a that's a little bit of a like a lighter approach. I can imagine it, yeah. but I have to be very visual for them. Yeah, yeah, to get them to see what I'm seeing. Because in my head, I think in pictures, but they think yeah. in processes and structure. So we have to, I have to paint the tree for them and then right. they see the tree and then we align on the tree and we're like, cool, now let's move forward. Right. Then they go, then they go build a spreadsheet. Um, <laughs> the, uh, uh, I can't believe you just told me that. That is amazing. I know. Okay. I know. <laughs> like, okay. All right. I'm like plot twist. <laughs> yeah. That was a plot twist and I'm really happy for you. Okay. Um, now a lot of entrepreneurs are listening and I wonder, you know, um, you know, what practical advice do you have? Like what? initial steps can someone take to, um, you know, learn more about the kind of product that they want to create? It sounds to me like you were thinking about aprons before the opportunity happened. It yeah. probably could have been other things. I mean, I don't know what other things were going through your head while you were in the kitchen, but what steps can people take to figure out um, the sort of product that they might invent? Yeah. Well, definitely putting yourself in spaces where you can absorb and learn around from the people that are there, right? So I strongly believe in internships, in taking jobs that maybe they're not paying you the most amount of money because you have no idea what you're doing, but you get to watch and learn by osmosis. And when you are surrounded by people that are more brilliant than you in that field and you get to learn from them, like that's gold because it's practical, it's real, it's not theoretical. You're seeing it in real life. And I believe that if you do that enough, you put yourself in moments like I did with the restaurant, with Mexico, with culinary school, where you finally find those things that really speak to you and they get you going. They get you on the journey. It might not be the exact thing. The thing you start with might not be the thing that you end with, but it gets you on the path to somewhere. And then when you get somewhere, you're going to get to the next somewhere. But that is, that is something that it's just like, oh, they're like, well, how do I start? Where do I go? like, okay, you want to be a teacher? Go be a teacher's assistant. Go work at an elementary school. Be an assistant. Make yourself available and make yourself useful to people in that area in whatever capacity you have. Barter your skills that you have. And remember, focus on what you have, not what you don't have. And get out there and just do it. Stop giving yourself excuses. I plus one to that um, uh, completely. Um, I I wonder about um, uh, the like involvement of other people. You know, on one hand, you could say an entrepreneur has a vision. You know, the book's going to be in color. Like the aprons are going to be amazing. Um, uh, like, how often is it that two people or three people collaborate to have that vision? Um, is it more of the solo entrepreneur who brings along a lot of people? Or do you think from your experience, it's often like a 50-50 or a one-third, one-third, one-third kind of collaborative vision? I would assume it's the one person because it's, I don't know, maybe it's maybe that's yeah. uh, fiction, but what, what do you think? No, I totally agree with you. I think it takes one person to be crazy enough to believe it. And to really see it in their own mind. So you weren't looking for a partner. It. You weren't looking for like no. a entrepreneurial soulmate. 
No, I wasn't, but I actually, I knew different people and they helped me early on. And the minute we had bumps in the road, they were out. They were like, I don't, this is too much. Mm. I don't know if I want to like hang, hang with this. I think. So you, you had do... potential partners then at different yeah. places. Oh, yeah. Okay. I had and potent, by partners. I mean like another cook that wanted to work with me on it. Oh, not, right. Like that like, sounds good. Not financial partners. This was like, right. okay, I'll go pick up the bolt of fabric instead of you. Uh, but I, I think, Yes, you can totally have collaborators, but it's not mandatory. Just like having an MBA or having a, you know, investors is not mandatory. You don't need another co-founder to do it. You need the passion and the idea and you need a problem that you are solving for people. And then you need the humility to listen, to actually make sure that what you are delivering to people is what they need. And that takes a lot of tinkering. And adapting along the way, I'd say the first two, three years of Headley and then it was just me making custom orders and listening to chefs and making them better the next time and adapting and then putting every penny back into the company as I did this and never spending more than I made. And it was a humble, slow turtle road to success. It was just like, hmm, hmm. Not the hair, not the hair, hair. the tortoise road. Yeah. Tortoise time. So like beyond the first few years, and then once you got to the point where I love the graphic you have with the, um, like the mashups, like the H and B collaborations. So, um, you know, tell me about like how it is that you get Williams Sonoma, Rifle Paper Company, Madewell, Vans, like, how do you, like, how did you score these collaborations? And, um, and also why are there so many of these collaborations? Like, what is the like magic behind these? If you think back to the first apron that I made with Joseph Centeno, my very first order, it was a collaboration because I sat down with him and I said, what do you need? What do you love? What do you hate? How can I make this great for you? And he shared his insights and then I shared mine. And together we sort of made this apron baby. And it was really awesome to not do it totally on my own. And I loved getting this input feedback, this person, this sounding board. And as I felt more and more comfortable doing this, and we started landing amazing chefs like Martha Stewart and David Chang and all these incredible people out there in the world, I thought, man, if we can do this with people and corporations, and we were outfitting companies like SpaceX and Google and Four Seasons, I thought, we could do this with other companies too that are doing something different than us. And we can both bring something magical to the table that's totally unique and we can invent something new. And that is how the Vans times Headley and Bennett shoe came to life. It's like a chef's shoe. That's how our chef's socks came to life with another brand called Richer Poor. And I wrote an entire chapter in here that I think is really valuable for people on how to collaborate with others in business and some of the like key recipe pieces that you need to make it genuine. And, you know, I'll just give you one of them, like both sides of the table have to, they have to deliver something that the other person doesn't have. So in my case, I had chef knowledge and access and resources and people that really knew what they wanted in a shoe. And Vans had the manufacturing capabilities and the infrastructure to make shoes, but they didn't know how to make a shoe for chefs. And they wanted to really tap into that maker community. And I wanted to tap into the, you know, sort of skater community. So together we teamed up and made this awesome, unique product that people loved. Like it sold out in literally a couple of days 
And it was because it was different. It was unique. And we both brought some different elements to the table and people want uniqueness. So we made so it So are you now at the point where, uh, you know, these like amazing other brands are pitching Ellen Murray Bennett, or are you still sending cold emails across the transom trying to get people to listen to you? It's a combination, but I never have our company collaborate with anyone that we don't truly admire and they don't have similar values to us. If there are jerks in any way, shape or form, it's like, no, we're not going to collaborate with some random airline company because that just doesn't have anything to do with what we're doing, right? So it's got to be genuine. It's got to be different. It's got to be cool. And they typically are bigger brands than we are because they're not coming to us because of our size. They're coming to us because of our community and our world. And therefore, they're bringing us into their world. So that is the magic sauce of collaboration. And it's awesome. And it's a great way to expand your customer base because you get to now tap into a whole new world that didn't know about you. Now, I, before we move to audience Q&A, I do wonder, like, you know, you are just about the most exuberant, incandescent, really, like, person I know. But what about, like, the darkest, gloomiest, most uh, disappointing or discouraging days? Like, what what is that uh, story that when you say, like, yeah. oh, let, let me tell you about that and then and then tell me what happened? Yeah. There are a lot of moments in that book where I talk about the challenges and the failures that I went through in a really honest and raw way. Uh, one of them was extremely uh, pain. I'm like, should I tell you about the story of um, Mike of Mr. Voltaggio when we didn't deliver the aprons on time, or the time when we almost got evicted? I'm like, which story do you want more? <laughs> Because they're well, both okay, pretty since rough. I'm a Top Chef fan, I'm going with Voltaggio. Okay, we'll do okay. the Voltaggio story. So I was at a cooking event that I had weaseled which my Voltaggio? way into. Which Voltaggio? Which twin? Brian, was it Brian? Voltaggio. Okay, Brian. just wanted yes. to know. <laughs> yes. Okay. So I was at this event with Brian and Michael Voltaggio. I'd asked my chef, Simarusti, if I could come cook with him there for free because I wanted to be on the line with these famous chefs. And as we're all chopping there, like getting ready to deliver a bunch of plates, I turn over to him and, and he's like, I heard you make aprons. That's so cool. And I'm like, yeah, I started making aprons a while ago and I've been outfitting all these chefs and we're like cooking and there's just stuff happening <laughs> everywhere all around me. And, and he like looks over at me. He's like, oh, that's really cool. And he writes down on a piece of paper, 150 and then puts his number and sticks it in my pocket and then runs off because he has to go deliver some plates. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, what? He's, he's like, 150 aprons. That's what that meant. Yeah. And so out of the blue, as I'm standing there in this restaurant, Brian Voltaggio gave me a 150 unit order. It was like four times the size of my first order. And I thought, wow, I have made it. And I got the order. I talked to him the next day, secured deposit, all that stuff, and developed the design with him, was so pumped, got my sewing team that was outsourced to start working on the designs. And this was in the early days where it was all dream first. There were no details yet. It was all <laughs> de no details the details yet, were right. still later. Still later. <laughs> they were still later. Brian Voltaggio first, <laughs> details later. That's right. And long story short, the couple of days before those aprons were going to be ready, I'd been running around getting all the supplies. The sewers were not moving at the pace they needed to. And I just had an inkling that we were not going to hit this deadline. And I didn't know why or how or what was happening. And I would go to their office and I'd say, we need to get these aprons. 
and I would get more and more upset and mad. And I was like, literally like, we can't be late. Like we cannot mess this up. Like it was like yelling. This is the the order that's going to make us. Yeah, exactly. Break us. Right. And there were like Cheetos all over the place. And I was just like, oh my God, what am I doing? And sure enough, the FedEx truck arrives and they're like, FedEx, let's go. And I'm like, wait, the, the aprons are not ready. And they're literally just like putting on the edges. And I'm just like, oh my God, this is not happening. And I felt like the world was ending. This was my biggest order to date. I couldn't believe it. And he had a deadline that I was about to miss. So the FedEx truck leaves. I am still hustling the sewers to move faster and to get them done. And they just are are like, sorry, Elena, like it's not going to happen. Like not a care in the world. And I just couldn't handle it. And when they finally delivered the aprons many hours later, I got in my Mini Cooper that was tiny and drove my butt to LAX. And I was determined to drive onto the tarmac to get the aprons delivered to the FedEx <laughs> airplane. Like, what was I thought I even you were going to get on the airplane. No, you no. were going to drive onto the tarmac and flag yeah. the plane down. Flag the plane down as if they let you do things like that. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, the person at the big giant chain link fence was like, uh, what are you doing? You weirdo. He was like, what? And I had to turn around. And the next day I called chef's assistant and I said, we weren't unable to get those orders out by the deadline, by the deadline. I am so sorry. I am so devastated, but I want to take full responsibility for this because we said we would deliver and we didn't. And I'm just going to give these to you. And I comped the entire order, which Angela I was what? this big of a company. I was tiny. Maybe it was overkill, but in my heart of hearts, it felt like the right thing to do because I had made a commitment and my word was gold. I wasn't going to fuck this up. I couldn't, I wasn't allowed. So, but I did and I needed to own it and I paid for Wait, the did whole he, order. um, okay. If I were Brian Voltaggio, which I am not, I do not look like <laughs> Brian Voltaggio. I am not tattooed like Brian Voltaggio. Yeah. I'm not a chef. But I would say, Ellen Marie Bennett, I respect your integrity and you're getting paid in full. Is that what happened? Or was he like, great, 150 free aprons. That's awesome. I'll leave it up to your imagination. Mm, cliffhanger. 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 Padma. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah, well, yeah. that's great. So. so we are going to start with some audience questions now. Um, okay. I am going to ask you this one. Um, your mom, Ellen, sounds awesome. What did your mom say when you told her that you were going to start Headley and Bennett? She didn't flinch. She was just like, okay. <laughs> so of course you are. Yeah. She's like, all right, that's fine. And every time I brought her something new, I'd be like, we're in food and wine. We are outfitting Martha Stewart. She'd be like, that's nice. Okay. Like she was just so mellow and just kind of expected me to do things that were unexpected all the time mm. that it was normal it was normal for me to be doing things that were unusual and she just kind of acknowledged it but let me keep doing what I was doing and it, it in a way on one hand I was like no I want you to be excited and on the other hand it just kind of gave me mm. more liberty to just keep trying and and you know she saw me on the Ellen show today talking about the aprons and she was like 
over the moon. I hope I was going to say, I hope Ellen got her to like it got her. some emotion. It got her it, excited. Oh, and she cried. That's good. That's she did. She did. It was like nine years later, I got her to cry by being on the Ellen show. I'm like, man, tough customer. Can you, um, can you tell me what was Ellen like? She was actually delightful and really genuine and so kind and really excited to hear my journey. And she just kept saying like $300, you started with $300 and built a multi-million dollar company. How do you even do that? She was just so like, wow. It was, it was I wanted a to once hear in a that. Lifetime. I was like, tell me that she was nice because I want her to be nice and I have not no. met Ellen. So, okay. Yeah, she was... My- she was wonderful. And her entire team was like, that was awesome. She really liked talking to you. That was really fun. <laughs> that was an awesome segment. So I felt really just so lucky to get to be on there and say I'm a Mexican American woman that built this company with $300. And people were like, yay. <laughs> cheering. <laughs> yeah. Lots of cheering. Lots of cheering. Everybody got an apron. All 200 guests got an apron. Oh, uh, really? So, a book. A book. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. It was a book like and a whole, an apron or it just was a book? A, a, a book. I was like, a no, book. no. Apron was another show. It was a book. It was a book. When they have you on again, they'll all get an apron. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> all right. That sounds great. Okay. Second question uh, from the audience. Um, did you ever find that your gender or your age or both made it harder for you to start your business? Mm, such a good question. So in a way, I did a lot of that focus on what I have and not what I don't have. And because I was a woman and because I was a Mexican woman, I kind of used that as a, I was like, okay, well, that's the gift that I have is that I'm a woman. So how can I, how can I get ahead in life because of that? And you know what? I was like, wow, I'm way friendlier than a lot of the guys in the kitchen. So I can make friends with a lot of chefs. And instead of trying to be all serious and grumpy, like all the chefs, I'm actually just going to be myself and show up and be really excited about the things that all these guys are doing. And hopefully we can become friends. And if they become my customers later, how awesome is that? And because I embraced it and I embraced my own, you know, challenges of, of gender and all this stuff, it actually became a really big asset for me. And Mark Vetri and I, like we met because I was at a food event where I had also asked my chef if I could go for free. And I just bulldozed right up to him. And I was like, hi, I'm Ellen. I'm here. And I have an apron company. And he's like, what? And now we're like great friends, but he'll never forget just the willingness to talk to him. So think about those things when you're out in the world and use it as a gift. It is a gift. You have way more EQ than a lot of people. You have emotional intelligence where you can tap into people and see how they look and feel and read the Empathy. room in a way. Empathy. These are gifts that women have that just kind of are par for the course. So I am very grateful for it. And I've never thought it was something that was going to hold me back, even if maybe I've had to fight harder and it hasn't been an easy journey, but I'm grateful for that. Uh, another question. I'm curious about your sustainability footprint. Do you use sustainable materials at Headley Bennett? Headley and Bennett. Yeah. So an amazing thing about H and B is we are actually extremely sustainable because we're so vertical. So a lot of companies they can say and claim we're sustainable, but they're flying everything in from the overseas and then they're making it over here and then they're shipping it over there. And for us, 
we receive the material and it's cut in the same building where it's sewn. And so, and where is that? That's in Los Angeles. So we have a 16,000 square foot factory here and we, we now have started working with other factories as well, but from day one, it was very much like bring it in house and do it up vertically. Right. And our third party logistics warehouse is just down the street. We use all recycled material on every single one of our packages. We, we basically avoid to, all plastic as much as we humanly can. And there's just these like little decisions and awareness moments where you, you choose, should I buy recycled paper or should I buy normal paper? And you say, I buy recycled paper. And, and it's, it's little bit by bit. I think people take sustainability to sometimes they make it overwhelming and it's an extreme, but you have to start with little tiny baby steps and then it grows and evolves and evolves. So that, that is my approach to sustainability at, at H&V. I'll also add that, you know, you don't build the, you know, this is like the opposite of fast fashion. You're not like, totally. oh, like have this apron and then you can throw it into the landfill next year. Yeah. Like I, I have the first apron that you gave me and, totally. uh, and it's like as if it were made yesterday. So um, yeah, that's our aprons, do, that's exactly, that's such a good point, um, Angela. Our aprons last a really long time. And in regular kitchens, you typically have an apron for two or three months and then throw it away. But I have people that have aprons for seven, eight years. So just think about how much material we are saving by having a garment that doesn't have to get constantly replenished. It's just the same one again and again and again. Okay, here's a question that begins, nothing scares creatives more than failure. You did touch on this a bit in your story, but how do you get over failing in your journey to becoming a business owner? Um, and I do think it's a great question because um, uh, I think it's like the question. So, um, you know, what more do you want to say? Either offer another story or like, you know, self-talk or, or a strategy. Um, what would yeah. you say to this question? Yeah. I think that I've had enough circumstances where I've failed really hard and lived through some tough things and kind of stood up on the other side. So I am, I'm certain I am stronger than I think I am. And I just remember that. And I think COVID is a perfect example. Wait, say that again. Say that again. Like, what did you like? Cause it's, it's just say it again, because I want to make sure I understand. I want to make sure everyone hears it. Like you say to yourself that I'm stronger than I think I'm stronger I am. than I think I am. Yeah. Like sometimes you go through life and you're like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do that. And then you do it and you're like, Oh wow, I could do that. And, and I was saying that COVID is a perfect example of that because we all survived that in so many ways and some people didn't, but it was a, a moment of the most gritty, resilient situation you could have ever imagined for humankind and we all had to adapt and figure it out. And yet well, you and I are still standing here on April 28th, 2021, alive and saying we made that, we made it through. And so we are stronger than we think we are always. And so if you think that you can't, what if you try and it turns out you can? And I, I just kind of give myself that benefit of the doubt. And guess what? I don't land all the landings and it hurts and I bleed and I cry and it, it's painful. And I feel like at that moment I failed myself, but then I also realized like if I hadn't even tried, well, I wouldn't know if I could have done it and it would have all been in my head. So 
why not just take the leap and an attempt, an attempted failure, right? An attempt and a failure is better than just an idea of it. Ellen Marie Bennett, I, now you I'm are curious. Everything I that I study, uh, but uh, no, this is about you. But I'll just say you are so gritty. Here's our last audience question, but then I have one last question after that one. So the last audience question okay. is. Ellen Marie Bennett, will you be making maternity aprons? Is that a thing? Should <laughs> maternity aprons like be a thing? Uh, and somebody else asked relatedly, what about baby aprons? Anyway, talk about maternity aprons. I'm like, you talk about I'm like did those questions come after I confessed? That I think <laughs> that was probably after you just told everybody your big news. Oh my goodness. Okay, so our aprons actually fit so many sizes and shapes, large, tall, skinny, all the different widths and all of it. And the straps are really long and they fit around you all together. So I actually think that any apron we have would work as a maternity apron. We make them very universally and very inclusive in size. So technically any Headley invented apron will work even if you're pregnant. So go out and, and get pregnant, everybody. Everybody <laughs> go get pregnant. Have twins. And you go to headleyandbennett.com and get any apron and wear it. <laughs> It'll fit. Uh, and then we do have baby. We have two to four-year-old aprons and four to eight-year-old aprons. And they are so charming <gasps> and all I didn't of the, know that. Yeah. And all of the kids shows on the Food Network, all the kids baking championship shows all wear Headley and Bennett. You'll see the little, the little red ampersand patch out there flying in the world. And now when you see it, you'll know, oh, you'll know. that's Headley and Bennett. Yep. That's our you'll logo. Be in, you'll be in the in group. Okay. Right. I want to thank, uh, I want to thank the audience for their great questions. And now I want to turn to the very last question for this evening. It's a tradition here to ask all speakers the following. Ellen Marie Bennett, what is your 60-second idea to change the world? That's such a big doozy after a crazy long day. 60-second idea to change the world. 60-second idea to change the world. Okay, I I think this one's low-hanging fruit because my husband is really, really into all of this, but I, I think that there is a way to create sustainability with cleaning, like how we show up and clean in our lives and in our kitchens and in our homes and making it so that they're like capsules instead of bottles and plastics and becoming a lot more kind of going full circle back to square one back in the day when we didn't have any plastic. And it's just like, okay, you've got a container and then you're going to get a little capsule cartridge and you're going to put it in instead of buying a bottle of Windex that you then throw away And I think people are already starting to do that. But if we really made that normal and everybody started doing that and everybody carried glass in in containers instead of you need a fork every time you go out or you need a napkin or whatever, that's an extension of cleaning, right? But that's just part of it, right? You need something you're eating. It all just has to do with like consumption. So I, I believe that is a way to change the world. It, it's, it's a little piece of the issue, but it takes little pieces to then start making these bigger impacts. 
I love that. And we didn't even talk about your husband. That'll have to be for the next conversation. But I just want to say uh, thank you, Ellen. And um, I want to uh, tell everybody today that uh, this amazing book, which I like loved so much. I think I texted you like while I was reading. I was like, oh my God. By the way, I love that you dropped the F-bomb and other exciting language in this as well. Um, it can be purchased through your preferred bookseller. It's available just this week now. Um, if you'd like to watch more virtual programs or to support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash online. Uh, thank you for joining us today at Inform at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Angela Duckworth. Everybody out there, thank you and be safe. You've been listening to a podcast of Inform, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at informsf.org.